I feel like today um, is the day the Lord told me they're gonna wrap up uh, the series on David. Although we're only in the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's a lot more of David's life to dig into. I feel like right now uh, the Lord said we have another direction and there's more of a, a purpose and a focus and I wanna kinda tie it up and, and tie into that. As I shared with you last week, David's first official act as king was to uh, say to the Lord, I live in this beautiful house and the ark of God is in a tent. And there was something in David that said, this is just not right. How could I take all the blessing of God and all the things that God's given to me and keep it for myself? I've surely got to build something for the honor and for the glory of God. How can I have it better than God? And God's response to his David, I never asked for a place to live. I mean, it's kind of cute. I think God was up there going, that's really cute. So you think that if you build me a house made of stone, that that'll be more adequate for the God who fills heaven and earth. That's really cute. And you know, I mean, you know the things that we do for God, it's always fishes and loaves. Anything that we have to offer God in terms of, hey, I'm gonna do this for you, Jesus, it's always like that little boy with the Happy Meal that fed 5,000 people. No matter how much greatness, the multi-billionaires of the world pooling their resources to build something for God is still just cute, but God loves it. God adores when his people say, out of an act of love for you, I wanna do something out of gratitude for the fact that you pulled me out of darkness, put me in your marvelous light, I'll do anything for you. How many of you was that one of your first prayers when you got saved? Once you came to this reality that, oh my, I am now invited to the table of the Lord. I now have life more abundantly, I have eternity, I have been chosen to be a son of God. What can I do, I'll give the rest of my life to you, I'll go anywhere, you know what I said first? I'll go even to Africa. <laughs> Eight times now, I can't wait. This will be the ninth time. I can't wait to go again. And who, who knows where else? But, but we, the point is we, we have this heart, right? And we say we have just got to go and do something for the Lord. So David's heart was, I want to build him a temple. I, I want to make something big and beautiful. So when people come to see this city, Jerusalem, when they come and see this city, they know that ours is the only true God. And so God said, all right, if that's what you want to do, I'll let you do that. And, and later on, God said to him, look, you can't build it though, because you've, you've shed too much blood. You're a warrior. You're not gonna be the one to build it. Your son will build it. So David then devoted the rest of his life to saving up all the materials and all the wealth that would be necessary so the next generation could build the temple. Boy, are we in need of that spirit to be restored to the body of Christ especially here in the Western world, especially here in America, when we're all about, I, don't know, I remember one of the first, when I, re, I remember the day before bumper stickers were a thing. Do you remember that? Before people started putting sayings, they, those were the original memes, by the way. We used to put them on our bumpers when there was no social media. And, and one of them I remember reading when I was in college, it said, I'm spending my children's inheritance. You remember that one? That was one of the first ones that kind of got out there. And I chuckled a little bit at first. Then I got a little bit older and I thought about it. I said, man, that is the most anti-father heart thing that we could do. I am gonna take all the wealth and all of the gifts and all of the blessing that God gives to me and spend it on me. That if there is anything more than, than a me generation than that, I don't know what it is. 
But where's the generation alive who's gonna say, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to pay a price, I'm willing to lay down my life, I'm even willing to be misunderstood, I'm willing to not have the kind of success that makes the world say, wow, that was amazing what that guy did for the sake of my children and their children, having things that I only dream about. I know that I'm in more of a company of that than just one amen for saying that, would say, but what that means is that there's not, we're not looking for immediate results. We're looking for something of a foundation that's been laid in Christ. I talked about that last week, right? I think, I can't remember, last week was a, a blur, but, but that we're laying a foundation such that generations to come will be able to experience things that we only dream of. So with David and, and with his life, he, um, he built a house out of his love, out of love, uh, and out of God's love and his love for him. And his descendants though, this is where the next generation's gotta watch what they do with what they've been given. His next generation, from Solomon's generation all the way on out, made that temple. I mean, the day they dedicated the temple, when Solomon finally finished the project, the priests began to minister, they began to offer sacrifice, they began to do all the things that, that the temple was made for, and it was so, the glory of God filled the place so strong that the people couldn't even stand anymore to minister. Their presence was so rich. How many of you have experienced that? Like Amber shared about that, that, that glory cloud. If you've been in the Pentecostal movement for a while, you know we call that the Shekinah glory cloud. It's, it's where there's a visible presence of God. But how many have experienced when the presence of God is so rich you just can't even stand up anymore? Sometimes, you know, hands are laid on you and you fall down. Sometimes you just drop to your knees and get on your face. Because, uh, you know, part of the, one of the meanings of the word glory is weightiness. When the glory of God comes on it, it, the weight of that glory is such that you can't even stand. That was the temple the day it was dedicated. Forty years later, at the end of Solomon's life, after a thousand wives and who knows how many, uh, 700 wives, thousand concubines, whatever, way too many women, there were idols all over the temple. On the inside of the holy place of the temple of God, there were idols, Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other things. And for all the generations to come, there'd be a revival of a king like a Hezekiah or Josiah, and then, then there'd be a return to those idols. And that temple never, except for that first generation, became what it was built for. And that's an amazing thing and a real warning for all of us that the thing that we build for the glory of God, if we forget who it was built for, if we make a building, you know the word church? Here's a little history for you. The word church is not a good translation of the Greek word, ekklesia is the Greek word that we translate church. The word church in the Old English meant a building. How many of you know the church was never made to be a building? When we started, guys, we didn't have buildings. We met in caves. We met in secret in somebody's house. The first generation had the boldness to preach and minister right at the temple. They were persecuted for it. They got arrested for it. They got beaten for it. But we never had buildings. That was not our inheritance. The people that turned the world upside down, that was their testimony. Wouldn't that be awesome to have that testimony again? The people who have turned the world upside down have come to us. <laughs> you guys with me? Then that, wouldn't that be amazing? Because I'll tell you what, I, I would rather put it, the world turned right side up. Yeah. It feels like it's upside down right now. Black is white, white's black, right's wrong, wrong's right, and so on. We want to turn it right side up. 
but we're part of something that is absolutely the most important building project in human history, and it's the building up of the church. And yes, it involves what we do out there, and yes, it involves our ministry to the Lord, but it also especially involves, you gotta have stones to build a building. There has gotta be building material that will be fitly framed together, or you don't have a building, you have a pile of stones. And I wanna tell you that a lot of church uh, the, the way we've done church, and I'm not just speaking about Hillside, I'm speaking broadly right now. The way that we've done church is like you got a lot full of building materials that are in desperate need of being built up together. A becoming like family, becoming like that testimony you just heard Mel share, that do life together, that don't just gather on a Sunday morning and then go about you know, everyone to their own houses for the week, but I mean a people who love and value the building material that God has taken and said, I am putting you in and you're gonna be part of a building project that's eternal. Hell and high water will not move this thing off its foundation. No fire will burn this thing to the ground. You are in now as a permanent fixture in the eternal house of the Lord. How many of those do I have here today? Now you see, if you don't raise your hand, what you do is you make me tempted to preach the gospel like you never heard it before. There was a man named Jesus. You want me to, to go there? Then you gotta interact with me a little bit sometimes. Don't just stare at me and smile. Jesus went to the temple. Now the prophets, you know, the temple was destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. Todd preached so well about its reconstruction under uh, the, the exiles who returned, Ex Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. Not Esther didn't rebuild the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt Jerusalem and so on. And, and then that temple just sat. And then came the century around when Jesus was born and Herod the king, Herod the great, he called himself, really put all of his wealth into that. And they built this gigantic, magnificent thing. It was better and more glorious even than Solomon's temple would have been. And Jesus came to that temple and the promise of the prophets was, um, surely the desire of all nations will come and the glory of this latter house will exceed the glory of the former. The desire of nations will come to it. Now the people of Israel at that time thought it's gonna be the physical temple and it's gonna be the, um, you know, the glory of God manifest like it was in the days of Solomon in this place. But what, what Jesus came was he, he went to the temple and he said, you know, you see this temple right here? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And they, they said, were well, you nuts? It took us 46 years to build this temple. Talk about being ignorant of your own history. 46 years? Dude, Ezra started this thing back centuries ago, 46 years to build this temple. But th this one right here, which by the way, was empty of the presence of God. Somebody says, scholars say that the ark wasn't in the whole, most holy place. I don't know if they, we, we don't know for sure. Maybe they made a new one or whatever, but th th that it was empty. Whether the physical ark was in there or not, it was empty of the presence of God in that day too. So much so, they'd gone so far away from the God whose presence that temple was made for that they rejected the word made flesh and crucified him. I mean, that's how demonic they'd gotten in the days of Jesus. And they said, it took 46 years to build this up and you're gonna raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. His body, what's his body? Was it just the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth? Or do we not have more New Testament revelation about what he was really talking about? The place where God's presence will dwell is made up of living stones, 
all of whom are in this room right now, some of whom are in this room right now, and we're being built up together. For us to be a building means we're built up together. This is the building project where the glory of God will fill it. So, I, um, Stephanie, for some reason, the camera in the back is cut off at the top. So can you go to the next slide for me? I don't know what's going on with that right there, but there it is. So when the church becomes more about the buildings, programs, and religious structure than it is about the people for whom it's being built, we just fell into the same trap that the original temple made by Solomon became. The church can become all about the programs. It can become about the building. Now, I'm not saying the building's not important. Don't you like having a dry place to meet when it's raining outside? Don't you like to have a warm place to meet when it's hot outside? We're getting that HVAC in. It'll be, it'll be, I don't know what the new date is. I know we had some issues with the axles and whatnot on that, but soon we'll have heat again in here for the winter that's coming. And next summer, we won't be sweating while we meet like Liberians, which I don't know, maybe that's not a bad thing for Americans to experience a little bit of that. But anyway, come back, Jesus. What was I really gonna say? Buildings are great. Programs are great. Ministries and religious structures, some of them are great and important. I used to, you, you, ever, you ever hear somebody say, the church isn't an organization, it's an organism? And what they mean by that is, well, we shouldn't be organized at all. Let's just everybody do our own thing. And, you know, we'll meet in houses. We'll have a couple house churches here. We'll just gather there. My church is my friends that I have coffee with once a week. Some will say in that because, you know, the organization is always dead. To which, you know, I was a biology major in college. Have you ever studied an organism? Have you ever even looked at one of the trillion cells that makes up a little organism? They are so complicated, and they, man, they are amazing little, little manufacturing plants of power and energy, and they're highly organized. <laughs> we don't want dead, lifeless organization, but we do need to be organized. Organs are cells and, and tissue that have become organized, and without which, we'd all be dead if we were not organized on the inside. So there is organization in the body of Christ. There's leadership, there are gifts, there are parts of the body that have to be knit together and communicate with each other and everybody perform their function for the body of Christ to be a place where God's presence can dwell, where, where all the purpose of the body of Christ can be. So his temple is for housing his body, for giving him a place in the earth to rule from, this temple is made of living stones. So here's the first living stone. Let's talk about the building material for a minute. Because if we say I love the temple, but I don't love some of the parts of that temple, then John says that we've become a liar and the truth isn't in us. If we say I love God, but I don't love my brother, then, then we're a liar, the truth isn't in us. There, there's no room for that. If we love God's house, it means we love every stone that God wants for that house, including the ones who have yet to be knit together in that house. So here's, here's our favorite living stone. In fact, the one who coined that term is in first Peter. Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. He said, oh, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, Peter, and Jesus wanted to make sure he knew, hey, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. So next time you have your argument about who's the greatest, you can't go to them and say, see, I figured it out. I'm the smart one. He, he said, no, God just showed you that. 
or you'd have been like all the rest of the crowd still confused about who I am. He said, therefore I say that you are Peter, you're a rock. His given name was Simon, which means an empty reed. That's what Simon means, a reed. Blown in the wind, empty on the inside, strong looking on the outside, hollow in the middle. That was Peter. Big, brave, strong Peter, I'll never deny you, Lord. They might deny you, but I'll go and die for you. I don't know him. No, I don't know him. I swear to God, I don't know him. On the same day, right? That's Peter. Well, that was Simon when Jesus got a hold of him. But Jesus saw through who Simon was and said, no, 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 when I get through with you, you're gonna be Peter, a rock. You are gonna be upon this rock. I will build my church. And that, that is gonna be built so strong that the gates of Hades itself, the gates of death, the gates of hell and the grave not gonna be able to resist you by the time I get through with you. You're the first stone being built up. Who did God choose? I just love, there were some disciples I think that we might have been able to say, hey, that was a good pick. Like if you believe the way the chosen is portraying it, Philip, you know, he's pretty cool. <laughs> Any other chosen super fans? He's this John the Baptist disciple. Like he knows all the answers when the others are all confused like that. There might have been some other ones that were a little bit more noble, but no, it had to be Peter, the one who lived with his foot in his mouth. Like he walked around like this because it was always in his mouth. The one who, you know, foul mouth fisherman, get away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and he's gonna be the first stone that Jesus says, I choose you. And now instead of being a hollow reed, you're now a rock and you're the first one, and I'm gonna start building a church. From now until the end of time, the most important building project has now begun with somebody who only confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only requirement to become a living stone. It, uh, when we, we're gonna look in the next few weeks and see this season we're coming into is a season of evangelism. It's a season for us to pick up our eyes and look out to the fields because they're white unto harvest. I'm just saying that now. That's the season we're coming into right now. It's already upon us. We're looking, we're picking up our gaze. We're no longer gonna be self-focused. We're not gonna be just focused only on our family. We do need to focus on our family. We need to love our family, but that doesn't mean to the exclusion of the rest of the living stones because that's eternal family. You know, I love uh, Keith Green was my favorite artist when I was new in Christ. He died before I came to Christ, but I listened to his music, and he had a great say in one of his songs, he was singing over his child, his new, I think it was his firstborn son, and he said, my son, I am only your brother. For a sister, God gave me your mother. And it was this revelation of, yes, we're a biological family, and I have a responsibility there, but the eternal reality is all the family of God. Jesus, Jesus started this whole thing. He said, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? That everybody, all of these disciples, they're my mother, they are my brothers. We're all family. We are family. I got all my sisters in me. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. I tried. We are. So the most important building project in history is the building up of a church. Now the church is built when the members of the body are being built up together. You cannot be built, if you're watching online, I'm talking to you right now, look me in the eyes. I'm looking at the camera, which is really weird, in a room full of people. You are not being built up as part of the body of Christ by watching a screen. This is a tool that we use for those who can't be here because they're out of town, 
for those who maybe you're finding us, you found us online during COVID maybe, or you found us online for whatever reason, you were scrolling around and boop, you happened upon us. And, and some of you are probably clicking, I'm out of here now, because he's talking to me directly. But I wanna tell you, you are not being built up a member of the body of Christ if you're absent from the assembly of the saints. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. You ever get a, uh, how many of you, when you were kids, did model planes? Did you ever do that? They came in a box, right? And they were, because of the way they were made out of the plastic, they were kind of connected to each other in the box, you know, so all the parts were like this, connected to each other like that. Well, that's not a building yet. That's not what Jesus does with us. He's not into this mass production, mass producing of disciples. Everyone's different, everyone's unique. But in the box, we're just kind of, we're not, we don't look like an airplane yet. I remember I built one, I think it was a B-52, like World War II. It took me weeks to finish this thing and I lost one little part. Yeah, right? Mm. So it was never complete. Never was complete. I might, I might need some time. I need some inner healing on this one. This is like a 45-year-old wound that's coming to light. It never got finished. I think it was, I don't know what part it was, but I, I just, you know, displayed it with that missing part not. So anyway, it's got to be glued together. You got to snap those things out of their comfortable place in the box. So some of you need to be snapped out of your box. I'm snapping you right now out of the box in Jesus' name. Be your part, don't be in the box like this anymore. Get out, be unstuck in Jesus' name. Get out of the safe place and get into the mix. I know some of you were hurt. I know some of you here were hurt. People hurt. 99 out of 100 wounds that we walk with in life came through people. Welcome to life. This is what it is. Jesus said it is impossible that offenses shouldn't come. Jesus was no downer. He wasn't a guy that was, oh, don't speak negative things, Jesus. No, he was real. And he experienced all of it. You know what's glorious about Jesus? There's nothing that you and I will ever experience that Jesus didn't experience himself first. He doesn't ask us to forgive 70 times seven without knowing what it feels like to forgive 70 times seven. He knows what it feels like to forgive the people who were cussing at him through gritted teeth, excited that he was being crucified, and he forgave them on the spot. And even asked God the Father to stay his hand of judgment upon them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. So yeah, Jesus knows all about hurt, but I'm telling you, if you stay in the box like this, you're the one in the parable of the talents who at the end of the day comes back and says to the master, well, you never gave me any talents, and so I took mine and buried it. Please repent of that today, we need you. If you're here present and you've been withholding what you've got because you got hurt somehow or you got offended somehow or you, you, whatever happened in you, I urge you, if it's an offense, deal with it, take care of it mature enough in Christ to go to the one who offended you and work it out. We are, our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, right? If we can't reconcile, we have no ministry. Work it out, reconcile, but stop hiding. Stop hiding in that box, be unsnapped, okay? So we go after the ones who are not right now connected in the body of Christ. We're, we're going after the members who are broken. 
the ones who are separated, the ones who are discouraged, even the ones who are prodigal. Yeah, those are the ones. They belong in the temple, living stones. Some of them need resurrection miracles. Their soul has become so discouraged that that they can't even imagine. Some of you, maybe you're watching at home and you're on your couch because you can't even get up because you become so discouraged that it's led to depression. I'm telling you in Jesus' name, get up, pick up your mat and walk and connect with the body of Christ. The reason why some are drying up out there, the reason why maybe even some who gather with us on Sundays are drying up is because you're not giving and receiving the life flow of the body. You're like a a limb that's been cut off. You know, Jesus said it, he's the vine, I'm gonna mix metaphors now for a minute. You're like a vine, a branch of a vine, you've been cut off. You know, it's nice when you cut flowers, you can buy, you can go and cut your own flowers next season now, it's a little late at Spots Produce, you could cut your own, you could buy them, but once you cut that thing, you could put it in water and it'll last for a little while, but then you either gotta hang it up and dry it or it's just gonna get ugly looking. And, and some in the body have cut themselves off from Christ and his body for a variety of reasons, mostly because of hurts, mostly because of offense. And if you feel like you're withering and drying out, then I urge you, get grafted back in. Reconnect with the body of Christ. Give your portion to the body and receive from your portion of the body. There's no part of the body that only receives. We find life because we give life and we need to receive it. No part of the body can say, I have no need of you. So this is what I feel like. Now now I'm gonna get to the message. Don't worry, I always watch the clock. I'm sensitive to your time. So David, the second Samuel chapter nine, if you want to go there. If you still bring a Bible to church and don't just rely on that screen up there. It's a good practice to get into to be able to find things in your Bible. I can't remember addresses all the time, but I know it's like on the top right of the right side page. Because I still, you know what I found? Just, just a side word, freebie extra to this message that I use digital resources too, like I have my Bible on my phone, I search for things. Instead of using the concordance at the back of my Bible now, I I just use the concordance on my digital things. And do you know, Google is actually real, Google knows the Bible really well. (laughs) If you have translation aphasia, like I do, because I started out in Christ using King James and I started using the NIV, the nearly inspired version. Then I switched to the new King James version and now I use the NASB. So whatever scriptures I memorized while I was using that Bible, that's how I have it in my head. So sometimes I go to find it and I read right over it because it's in the wrong, it's a different translation. Google knows all the translations, just saying. But there's something about having a physical Bible you know, my, my favorite thing is when I see somebody's Bible, it's got notes, it's got writing in it, it's got highlights, and the pages are falling out. I forgot to bring my new Bible today, so I had this one. Oh, if you saw me, I heard somebody laugh, but Ephesians 4 fell out, like that page, because I'm in that passage so often, and there it is on my chair right now, because it was annoying me, it kept falling out. <laughs> so, I don't know. Look, Chinese believers, they pass around one page of a Bible in their prison cells for each other, and they memorize it. And they, and they wonder, why, don't, why do Americans have 15 Bibles on their shelves and they never open them? I didn't want to go there, so let me, uh, let me come back. But I feel like somebody needed to hear that. 2 Samuel chapter 9, after David had his conversation with the Lord about the temple, and they agreed, okay, we're going to do this thing, I'm going to save up for it. David, now his heart was like, how else 
can I express God's heart? I want to manifest God's heart in the earth. That's what it means, as we've been seeing for the last few months, to be a man after God's own heart means to carry God's heart. So there is a pursuit, because none of us are there yet, right? None of us quite loves like he loves yet. None of us quite has the full character of Jesus Christ, yet we're all in process and we're all making progress. That's the most important thing. We've been having discussions, um, friends of mine and elders and I, we've been having discussions. How do you measure growth in a church? Numbers is the most common way we'll measure growth. Budget is another common way we'll measure uh, growth in a church, but I would suggest biblically, it's are all of the people growing and making progress in the Lord. Are all of the people bearing fruits that remain and prove that they're disciples? I would rather pastor a couple of hundred people who are on fire for the Lord doing this stuff than have 2,000 who gather to receive and then go back and do their own thing during the week. Not that, I mean, it would be awesome to have, we'd have to have a new building. It'd be great to have 2,000 on fire for the Lord. I don't say that those are mutually exclusive, but I'm saying the measure of fruit and the measure of progress in our lives is what's happening on the inside. The kingdom of heaven does not come by observation. Why, Jesus? Because the kingdom of heaven is within you. You all know, every individual one of us knows, am I making progress in my faith? Is the word of God becoming more engrafted in my heart? Is my character and my nature better reflective of Christ than it was back 10, 20, 30 years ago? That's progress in the Lord. We look more like our Father every day. So here's David, and he's sitting comfortably now. He has rest from his enemies. He's saving up for the temple. And in chapter nine, David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? (laughs) Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in both feet. The king said to him, where is he? So Ziba said to the king, behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. I should have practiced that one before. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, my favorite name in the Bible. Don't name your kids that, but it's an awesome name. I mean, if you want to, they're your kids, but that's gonna make preschool a little tough. What's your name? Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons will cultivate the land for him. You'll bring in the produce. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. If that's not our salvation story in the Old Testament, I don't know what is because there was a time that every one of us was an enemy of God. You remember David fought seven years against the house of Saul, Mephibosheth's household, in order to gain the throne of Israel. He had absolutely nothing to offer the king. 
The only reason why Mephibosheth got to eat at that table in the presence of King David, ancestor of Jesus Christ, was because David invited him to the table. Do you know there's not a one of us, not a one of us that earned our way to the table of the Lord. There's none of us, however God found us, that earned our way, that had a right to sit at that table. But we, were, we began our lives as enemies of God. We were crippled in our capacity to do anything of worth for the king of all kings. And yet he in his mercy said, I choose you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter and I want you to live at my table. You know what the beautiful thing about this picture? Imagine Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. Talk about winning the lottery. He's sitting at the table right next to the king of Israel, the most popular man in that day, and the king that God chose. And he's sitting at the table, and you know what you can't see when he's at the table? His crippled legs. All you can see is his countenance. I bet for every day, at least for the first few years, absolutely in awe. with the king, that's David, I know him. He's eating at the king's table. So when it comes to the materials that God uses to build his kingdom, David invited into his family, he had his family, he had his wives and kids and all of that, way too many wives, he had all of that going on for him. But he said, I also need to have somebody around this table that has nothing to offer me. Absolutely none of us. There should be always a sense of awe among us that we get to sit at the table of the Lord. When we lose that awe and wonder, that is the first step toward drifting away from the Lord. When we get a feeling in us like we deserve to be here now, and it can come, I've experienced it. That my, one of my continual prayers, and I urge you to pick this one up, my continual prayers to the Lord is, can you always remind me of what it felt like to be outside of the family of God, to have no hope, to have no real future, to be the same depressed, you know, self-loathing man I used to be? Can you never let me forget what that felt like. Because although I want to enjoy all the benefits on this side of the cross, I want to experience life in that more abundantly. I want to experience all of what the kingdom can afford. I don't want to forget that I didn't earn my way into this place. And, and this changes 100% of the way we go about evangelism. Our mindset when it comes to those that are not yet sitting with us at the table of the Lord changes here and now that there's nobody out there undeserving of that table because none of us deserve to be at that table. So, you know, Jesus told some harrowing parables. So Jesus said all the most intense words that any preacher could ever re-utter. And he doesn't deserve to be canceled for it. And he told this parable of the sheep and the goats. And he said, we're always gonna get real about this because revival and a live church is about all of the demonstration of the gospel and power. We, we're a church that believes that, yeah, the gospel shouldn't just be words. There should be power behind those words. If we experience, you know, years go by and there's nobody being healed, nobody being delivered, nobody being saved, then we're gonna stop everything, get on our face and cry out to God and say, come back, Holy Spirit, because we missed something. It means that we've been like Mary and Joseph walking back to Nazareth from Jerusalem and it was four days till they realized Jesus isn't with us anymore. 
And we don't, we're not gonna be that church. Yes, yeah, so we, we do desire all of that, but we also can't forget that we exist for the benefit of those and the further away and the more sick, the more destitute, the more broken, the more likely it is that God's gonna be calling us into that life. We had a great word, pre-service prayer. I was gonna get up and share this early when you offered, but I thought I'm gonna weave it into the message anyway. So here's my answer to Stephanie's invitation with that. But before service, Todd brought out a word about the Valley of Dry Bones. You remember Ezekiel, he's there and he's standing before this valley and, and it's, it's like an army was there and they got defeated and it was so long ago that their bones are dead, gone, dried out completely. Nothing left on them. And God asked him, son of man, can these bones live? And I didn't want to interrupt the mood when we were praying earlier, but I think you know, the prophet's answer was, oh, you know, Lord. And I believe that he answered that because he wondered, I wonder if these are the bones of all the ones who got the answer wrong. No, it's not. That's not why he didn't answer it. That's always it. You know God never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to, right? So rather than saying something dumb, I always say, well, why don't you tell me? Because <laughs> clearly, if you're asking me, it's because I don't know. Or because I had the wrong answer and you want to make me rethink my belief. Because to look at a valley of bones that are totally dead and gone and answer the question, can these bones live? That, that's, a, that, that's impossible. That is, in what these eyes can see, absolutely, astoundingly impossible. And I believe the Lord's asking that question. When we see somebody who's really broken, where life has really gotten the best of them, and they find themselves in a pit somewhere or whatever of their own making or the making of others, and the question that God's asking you and me, can that one live? The answer is, by faith, yeah. With you, Everything's possible. And so, anoint the words of my mouth. Prophesy, the Lord said. Speak the word of the Lord over them. I'm not just gonna, boom, make those things come to life. I'm gonna involve you in the process by the word of your mouth. That's the, Ezekiel was the original preacher to bring the resurrection life. And he gave a complete picture of what the gospel's all about. It's us being able to look at that which is broken and seems absolutely impossible. I'm telling you, I hope, you, I hope it's hard for you to believe on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you'd have known me, college age Steve, up till the end of my junior year, and, you'd have told, and I would have told you then, or somebody would have told you then, oh, well, and he's gonna be a preacher one day. You'd have laughed so hard, you would. If you would have known what I was all about, what my life's destiny was about, how self-centered I was, how much of a user of people I was, no way on God's green earth would you ever say, oh, I hope he's my pastor one day. <laughs> you would not have said that. But God had something else in mind and some people became Ezekiel to me, prophesied to these dry bones and said, son of man, live, live. And we have got to adopt that view of the world to see beyond what these eyes can see and see deeper, see into the, the thoughts of God's heart. Because not a one that God created for destruction, with all due respect to my Calvinist friends, God did not create any human being just for the sake of them being destroyed as an example of why you should love and serve God. Our God is not like that. It makes no sense biblically anywhere to be found that God would create people and of his choice alone, say I created you just so you could be destroyed. 
It's our life choices. We get to pick whether we get on the ship, the, the ark, that, that goes and survives the flood, or whether we go down with some sinking ship along with the devil and all his angels. The choice is completely ours. But what's not our choice is to predetermine by looking at somebody which boat they're on. And so Jesus, in, in one of his most powerful corrective parables, the parable of the sheep and the goats, it's an amazing thing, you know, because I'm not going to take the time to read it. You all know it. And if you don't, go look it up, Matthew 25 afterward, that, that Jesus told the parable and both the sheep and the goats were surprised, were surprised at the judgment. I was hungry and you fed me. I was, uh, I was uh, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was sick and you, uh, uh, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me and they said, when? When did we see you? Now I'm hearing the Keith Green sheep and the goats song in my head. And, and what, he, what he was communicating to them by saying, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. It wasn't just some random homeless person. That was me. That was a portion of my body who had gone distant from me who made choices maybe or had choices made for him or her and got distant from me, but my heart is that they'll all come back home. You know, the correction in the way Jesus told them, I'm, I'm gonna go to another parable now. The correction Jesus gave to the crowd when he told the parable of the prodigal son was that they'd come to view the whole world as either lost or saved. Children of God are not children of God. And what, what Jesus wanted to correct was, no, 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 God views them all as children. Some of them live in the house. Some of them are off in a faraway country, but God's love for them is as a father for his child who's gone prodigal. That's the point of the parable. And it's a beautiful story of repentance, but it was a story given to correct the Pharisees' mindset that some are, like, some are in, some are out. Some are chosen, some are not as if we have the right to make that judgment. So we got all these needy people in this parable and they're all in need of compassion in one way or another. Somebody who's hungry, somebody who's thirsty, somebody who's prison, in prison, somebody who's gotten so poor they have no clothes or no roof over their head. All of these people are people that we run into and they're around us all the time. Lift up your heads hillside and look, because I'm telling you, the fields are white unto harvest. They're all around us right now. Some of them drive into our parking lot once a month. Some of them we walk past, some of them we drive past. There's a guy that walks the road, I just blanked on his name. He, I see him out my window over here. He doesn't want to talk yet, but he will one day. We're gonna warm him up, he's gonna become friendly and he's gonna come in for hot chocolate one day and he's gonna receive the love of Jesus and get saved. I've wondered, sometimes I drive past the man and I wonder, is that guy an angel? I wonder if it's, you know how, how Hebrews said, you know, for don't forget to show hospitality for some of you have entertained angels unawares and I wonder sometimes, is that an angel, this is a test? And I should bring him back home? I mean, I think if it was an angel, he'd have said yes to want to have a, but anyway, that's, that's, that's neither here nor there. When, when it comes to showing compassion, it's not an issue of passion. So the thing with those sheep and the goats, and I've talked with so many saints, even pastors about that parable, and, and I've gotten this response. Well, not everybody's called to that. I said, well, 
I gotta, I gotta just say that that wasn't one of the options Jesus gave in this parable. I mean, listen to the song of the sheep and the goats by Keith, Yo- Keith Yoder, I almost said. <laughs> Keith Green, <laughs> Keith Green. Keith Yoder is too kind to say it like that. Jesus isn't as kind as Keith Yoder. <laughs> then he said, look, don't, don't talk about faith. Don't tell me how much you love me. Show me how much you love me by loving people who have nothing to give you in return. Find him a Fibosheth out there, invite him to your table. He'll never be able to pay you back. And he might even deserve to be in the condition he's in right now because he made his bed, now he has to lie in it, as we say. But you don't need to wait for passion to rise up to show compassion. You know, Jesus is an indiscriminate sower of seed. This, this, uh, this is another one that I've heard and I've even had the thought myself, well, what if, what if that's not good soil? You ever hear that term? I don't know if that's good soil. I don't know if I wanna take the resource God's given to me and sow it into that person's life. And I hear that, and I'm not just saying every paycheck you get, just go out and throw money out on the street. But I will point out that in the parable of the sower, there are four kinds of soil, right? There's hard soil, there is stony soil, there's thorny soil, and there's good soil. And only one of those produced any kind of a harvest, 30, 50, 100 fold but the sower scattered his seed on all kinds of soil. And it's not because the father doesn't know how to farm. I believe the point, uh, you know, Jesus could have, of course the word was for the crowd, urging them to be good soil, right? But in the heavenly picture of it, the father was communicating to us, I don't want you to be the judge of who you think is good soil. I don't want you to be the one to determine that one is not worthy of my time, my resource, my words, my life. Don't be the judge of that. Rather, walk with the Father and look everywhere for divine opportunities, no matter what that person is in. Because when it comes down to it, when, when it comes to the mercy of God, how someone got into the pit we find them in is really irrelevant because he found everyone else, every one of us in a pit somewhere. Every one of us. Even if you're multi-generation in Christ and you were raised in Christ and maybe you had only a brief prodigal season, he pulled your family out of that pit somewhere along the way. And, and it, it would be just as easy to go right back into it. Nobody got to the table of the Lord by their own effort. And so when it comes to how we look to the fields that are white to harvest, it's not our place to judge, well, that person's irresponsible or that person got drug addicted because of this. That's not our role. Our role is to look at someone with eyes of compassion and look at dry bones that walk all around us, metaphorically speaking, and say, can that one live? I'm gonna prophesy to that and I'm gonna love that one into life and not treat people like scenery, but actually look for opportunities to bring the kingdom of heaven to a life that's absolutely broken and destitute. That's how the Lord builds his church. He takes the empty reed Simons and makes them living stones, puts them in a wall. Now that's part of my church. I'm proud of that stone right there. Oh, if you knew the story behind that stone. We're working on stories here right now and Brian's gathering some. Stephanie's really got a heart for it. You know, an amazing thing, this is just a side note and I'll wrap up in just a moment here, that um, we just went to New York City 
Staff asked, I asked the staff, what do you want to do? We'll go have a, a fun day just to be together and do something fun. They said, take us to New York and show us around. I said, all right. I took them to the safe places. I didn't take them back to my neighborhood. So we went around downtown and there were things about stories everywhere we looked. Right in the middle of, they have this um, mall that they built underneath where the World Trade Center subway station used to be. And now it's all shops. It's beautiful what they did in there. There's a whole store storefront that somebody paid for just so people could write their story and put it up on the wall. And, and then we're in Central Park. Central Park. I've been going to that place since I was a kid. They had this sign in there. I wish I would have. It said something like this park is a place for stories and everybody's story matters here. And it's like it's just everywhere. All of a sudden, you know, from maybe Hamilton was prophetic. Who will tell your story? Right. And, and it's just out there because God wants the world to know how he could take anybody and make them into something glorious. That there is no lost causes, no such thing as somebody who is beyond hope. And even if for the 99th time, that one rejects the word, that one says, no, I don't want you to pray for me when I ask in the parking lot. I'm not interested in your God. I curse your God and I curse you for bringing his name up again. Don't you ever say Jesus in front of me again. Well, maybe the hundredth time is going to be the charm. We don't know. We don't know. Well, lest we become like the older son in the prodigal son's story. Somebody's starting to make their way toward God and they're coming back home. The older son will be out in front saying, look, I know what you did. And I know you took your part and wasted it. I know what you've been up to. I've, been, I've seen your, your Instagram account. I, I know what you've been doing over in that faraway country. And before you come back in this house, you're gonna need to show me that you mean business right now because you've done wasted everything and you stink. You smell like pig. We don't have that kind of smell in this house. So that's what happens when we prejudge and determine when somebody's ready to come back home. Or we could be like the father and have eyes to see True repentance, eyes to see somebody. You know, uh, how many times we're right on the edge of breakthrough with somebody, but we allow offense to take, on, uh, take over our heart, and now we push them away and reject them when that was actually their moment of repentance. And it's not because the fathers rejected them. It's because we got offended because they kept saying no. Well, they kept pushing us away. And instead of being the father who runs and embraces, puts a ring on and shoes on the feet and a robe on, we become the older son who says, no, show me some fruits of repentance first. Then you can come into my house. So we're going for it, guys. We're going to go for it. Um, Jesus said these words, and I'm going to put this out as a challenge to us as a house. He was sitting in the house of a Pharisee, somebody who was on the council in Jerusalem, so one of the 70. Who knows which one it was at the time? Could have been Nicodemus, could have been... Joseph, it could have been one of the ones who shouted crucify him. We don't know. But he was in here and uh, he, was, he, he healed somebody in front of them who had dropsy. It was on the Sabbath. So, of course, that became a, quite the kerfuffle. But then Jesus started looking around at them and he knew what they were like and he knew what was, was how they went about these, these uh, Sabbath day festivities with each other. And he said, you know, when you, <laughs> only Jesus would say this to the host who just invited him for free dinner at his house. I mean, you know, Jesus just didn't care who you were. If you needed to hear truth, you were gonna hear truth because he loved everybody enough to tell the truth. So here's his host, 
and he's got all of his friends. He's trying to impress all of his friends. And he's, he's like, hey, guess who I got coming for? Guess who's coming for dinner? Or what's the movie? Look who's coming for dinner. And it's Jesus. And he's there. And he's got all of his friends from the council, all the wealthy, knowledgeable, intellectual elites of Israel around the table. And Jesus in the middle of it, he picks up like a chicken leg and he's going to look. When you invite, when you have a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives and all your rich neighbors like you did here today. Instead, you know, because they might invite you in return and that's your repayment. So you didn't do any charity today. You just did for somebody, but you scratch their back, they scratch yours. That's not the love I'm looking for. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. He's still got a chicken leg in his hand. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. I want you to have a reception and invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Now you do that and you'll be blessed because they don't have the means to repay you. That means that you're extending the one-way street kind of love that I came to reintroduce to the world. Agape is the Greek word. We all, you've all heard that. Agape simply means a one-way street love. I'm giving to you without any expectation of return on my investment. The, you know, kingdom of heaven is not, when it comes to putting our treasure in people, it's not like the stock market. You know, I, I put my treasure into that one, and man, now he got saved, and now he's in ministry, and now he's got a multinational ministry. Boy, I got a good return on my investment. That's not how this works. That, that's not how we measure whether we made a good investment in the kingdom. Jesus said, look, you, I want you to give to those who can't give you back, and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You may never see any benefit in this life. That person may not even remember to come back and thank you. Fact, you might have that one at your table for years, and then they slander you and curse you and they leave town. Don't give up and don't withhold your seed because you got rejected. Instead, just remember, there is a judgment day coming and there are treasures laid up in heaven for you. When we give to those who have no means to give back to us, Jesus is keeping record of that. You know what's amazing about Jesus? He long since stopped keeping a record of wrongs. There's no record of wrongs in heaven, but there are books, plural, that get opened at the judgment. There's, there's the Lamb's book of life and your name's written in it. That's the best news of all. But then there are other books. It's a record of, hey, I remember that homeless guy that you housed for three weeks, and even though he robbed you, this actually happened to us, even though he stole from you, and even though he, he made fun of you and your faith, and even though he slandered you back around the neighborhood, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna settle up his debt with you now, and, and here's your reward. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Take care of him, I'll pay you back when I come back. That was what the Good Samaritan did. That, that's it, our treasures are laid up in heaven. I'm just, I guess this is a long exhortation to urge you, don't worry about whether you get any return on your investment as we measure it. Just know, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and he'll repay him. So here's my challenge for us. Who will you invite to your table who presently has nothing to offer you in return. Don't tell them that's why you're inviting them, by the way. Just, just make, right? 
hey, my pastor said I gotta, you know, get somebody who's like, you know, broken and jacked up and, and I picked you. <laughs> Don't do that. But I'll bet every one of us right now has somebody, somebody, I mentioned that guy that walks 209 here, somebody in our lives right now that really is not in a position in life to give back. I, I hope to hear the testimony of what happened when you invited them around your table and invited them to join in the, the fruits, the prosperity, all of the, the blessing that God's given you since he took you out of darkness and into his light. Can we stand to our feet? Father, even now with the words that I just said, put a face on all of our minds. Put, put a, a life on our hearts right now, maybe the life of a family on our heart right now, that we would be like David and find a Mephibosheth and offer them a seat at our table. I thank you for the strength of family, the strength of faith, the strength of community that so many of us have here at Hillside. And now I pray that there'd be a seat at the table filled with somebody who is really, really broken who life has just seemed to have a heyday with, dry bones coming to life now around our own table. Father, I pray that you would give us compassion, a willingness to show compassion, even if we're not passionate about this. I pray that you will overcome fear, fear about those people that look scary because of the culture we came out of, Fear of what, what happens if they, if they do something hurtful to me or fear, whatever the fear is, I pray that will pray, pay, play no factor in this, but instead let your perfect love throw that fear right out the door. I just wanna end with one quick testimony that happened early on in my walk with God. I just received the Lord and I was working as a caretaker at a summer camp out on Long Island so I couldn't go to church on Sundays because I always had a group there I had to care for. Uh, but I found a Wednesday night Bible study at a guy's house. Who he, he had this mansion. I, I got the address, and this was no Googling. I had to look on a map, and I looked on the map. So, oh my goodness, that's the Hamptons. And this guy's house is on the road right on the beach. You're, you're a multimillionaire to buy a shack on that stretch of road. So I went to this guy's house for the first Bible study and I pull up and sure enough, he's got a big circle out front, just about waited for somebody with a towel over his, you know, the butler to come to right this way. So it felt like that. So I got there and I pulled up in my beat up, my beat up old Toyota, parked it on the side about a half mile down the driveway from his house and I walked in and I stepped in it was this gigantic chandelier, double stairways going up the sides, big windows looking out over the Atlantic Ocean. And it was just absolutely stunning. I don't know how many rooms were in this house, but I was so intimidated to walk into this place. And I never felt so out of place in all my life. And that takes a lot for a New Yorker to feel out of place because we pretty much feel like we own the place when we walk in. But I did. I felt out of place. And the, the brother who hosted, he was dressed nice but not, you know, obscene. He said, hey, great, Brother Steve, come on in. And he brought me into this room where there was a table set. And around the table, 
there's a couple of people over here who were clearly homeless. There's this guy who looks like he maybe just got out of prison. There's this guy over here who looked just like me, so I sat next to him, only to find out he was an ex-felon. And you know, the whole table, we're all ex-fill-in-the-blanks. And we sat down, and this guy who was a multimillionaire, Wall Street executive, wish I could remember his name, made us all feel like we were at home and we belonged around his table. And he had servants. I mean, he had a catered, they had people that came out. I think he had a live-in cook in his house, and they came and served us. It was Italian food, and I felt like I was at the wedding supper of the lamb. And then he opened up the word to us, and he began to share his story, and he was an ex-something or other, and, and all of this. And I realized, I've come to a kingdom like this where the wealthiest don't think they're above hanging out with the least of these, whatever that means. But where they say, this is wealth that God's given me, and I got so much room in here, I don't even know what to do with it all. Come on and sit at my table. I got more than enough. I wanna urge you to be like that man. Be like David. Take what God's given you and ask the Lord, who can I invite around this table? And I, mean, I don't mean that metaphorically, I mean literally. Who can I invite over who has nothing to offer me in return? Because that, that's one of the many things that changed my life. And I believe it'll change many dry bones that come to your table. God bless you. Have an awesome week in Jesus. I love you. And I'll see you around the plan.